You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Shouldn't you be at work? And Love. Oh, and Love, he's got a real chance now. Peter and Love. John Walk will take the penalty. Up goes Dion Dublin. Unknown goal from Ruddock. Ball by Frank here for Kiwabia. We know Beckham can hit them from this sort of distance, but Phil LeGrice fancied it. Oh, and he finishes it. So good, they named him LeGrice. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, oh no. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? We're back again. I'm Chris Skoll and joining me as always, Josh Whittakam. Hello. And the only man who wouldn't be able to turn down a one-to-one-to-one with both Gary Neville and Adolf Hitler, it's Michael Martin. Hello. Hello. How are you both? Great. And there's been some huge 90s o'clock breaking news in the last 48 hours. It's been, been hectic on the news desk, Josh. Okay, well, I tell you what, we've got a couple of announcements to make ourselves. Let's make them. And then we'll have the correspondence, and then we'll be into the 90 o'clock news. Let's stop messing around and get on with this show. Two bits of exciting news to announce first. I'll do the first one, Skull, you do the second. Uh, Our first piece of Quickly Kevin Fan Club merch. Uh, That is the free merch you get if you're an XJ8 tier member. Uh, We'll be going out in mid-January. So, to be eligible for the Quickly Kevin 2021 calendar. Oh, just you saying it is exciting. It's very exciting, isn't it? It really should be the Quickly Kevin 1991 calendar. Um, <laughs> to be eligible for the Quickly Kevin 2021 calendar, you need to have signed up as an XJ8 member uh, before the end of 2020. So that's the 31st of December. And then they will go out in the middle of January once you've processed all the members. If you are a member, uh, you'll get an email uh, which will tell you how you need to, we need to get your postal addresses. So you'll get an email that will tell you how to fill in so we've got your postal addresses. So the, once again, the Quickly Kevin 2021 card. I'm so excited oh, about Jim, it. One of the things I'm most looking forward to through to the end of the year is picking who's going to go on what, which month. Andy yeah. Leg, a shoe-in for May, surely. <laughs> Do you think? I'm, I'm picturing Andy Leg uh, throwing a snowball in a room 3C. <laughs> It's gonna, it's gonna be one of the most fun afternoons of our lives when we finalise that calendar. 
Yeah. So uh, if you want a copy of that calendar, you need to um, sign up uh, to the XJ8 by December the 31st. Uh, that is um, the last day of 2020, for those that don't understand it. And uh, we will batch them out in the middle of January. Yes, if you want that calendar, head over to patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin. But if you sign up to Patreon, the calendar isn't the only thing you're going to get. Because as this year winds down to a close, we're about to bring you, in the absence of your actual Christmas party, the work's probably cancelled it, we're going to host our own Quickly Kevin Christmas party. There's going to be quizzes. There's going to be special guests. There's going to be brand new pieces of correspondence. There's going to be usage of the visual medium. And there's going to be prizes. And prizes, of course. Michael, actually, there's been a few times today we've nearly given us the gold of what one of those prizes are. Is this? Well, shall I tell you what I'm providing for the prize? Okay. okay. I bought a Italia 90 poster off eBay, which um, I uh, haven't got space for on my wall anymore. So that will be one of the prizes. It's a poster of the um, the official poster for Italia 90. That's a good prize. Michael, is, there, is this the opportunity for you to tell us what your special prize is? Well, well, well wait, wait there, Michael. Is it better than this? <laughs> uh, that's not for me to decide. I've got, listen to this, this is a drawer full of pro sets. That is a drawer full of pro sets. They will also be a special prize. Michael, is it better than that? I love that you open the drawer like we'd know what the sound of protest was. <laughs> like a really niche version of you bet. Well, if you do think it was just protests, you're wrong, because there's squads in there as well. I don't know if you remember squads. <laughs> so they will all be up for grabs. Michael, what have you got? QK Towers has shifted to a new location, a bigger premises. And during that move, I have uncovered a treasure trove of 90s football stuff. So... To give away on the night in some kind of like mad Santa Claus, bingo, tombola type situation, we have got some, Graham says, Hitler's mugs, some letters for town mugs. I found a, a bag of uh, the letters for town football shirts oh that we uh, shifted. We got some last ever ones of those to give away. Oh. I've got a load of uh, 90s football memorabilia, some of it signed by guests on our show. Oh. I found a voucher for £100 to spend on classic football shirts. Oh my com. God, this is unbelievable. I've also got a load of pro set, uh, some pani- unopened Panini stickers. Michael, and- I don't believe on the pro set unless I can hear them. <laughs> <laughs> and And the big one. This is the big one, guys. I have got in my hands right now an original copy of the infamous first book in the Steve Bruce crime trilogy, Striker, to give away to one lucky XJ8 member live on Sunday the 20th of December. Holy smokes. We will be giving it away on the show. Where have you got that from? It was in amongst my stuff. I forgot I had it. Whoa. Oh, my word. That's like Del Boy and Rodney in that final <laughs> episode of Ready for Horses. Okay, those prizes are good. Those prizes are good. Can I just... That is unbelievable, Michael. Yeah, but, but is it the best prizes on offer? Can I tell you about my prizes? Yeah. Okay, are you sat down? Yeah. Because don't want you falling back like Del Boy and Rodney uh, at the auctioneer. <laughs> okay, a box of boosts. Two copies of Neville Southall's new book. Actually, make that three. I've already read it. And... Right, just before we started recording tonight, I told Michael I had my eye on an England football tracksuit, the one Graham Taylor wears in an impossible job in the 92-94. I'm in it for the tracksuit top, so the bottoms are up for grabs on our special quiz. (laughs) (laughs) They will all be available on the night. We'll be joined by special guests. We will have, do you know what, in in a reversal of fortunes, uh, I will be uh, setting a quiz for Michael and our listeners. Uh, if you'd enjoy that. 
Also, I'm planning on getting quite pissed. <laughs> um, it's going to be a brilliant night. I look forward to it. So, the Quickly Kevin Christmas party is on Sunday, the 20th of December. I imagine we're going to open with some pictures of the Liverpool Christmas party from the 90s. I'd hope so. Uh, Sunday, December the 20th at 8pm. And uh, the way that you can uh, get your tickets is either be a Patreon member, in which you can attend for free, or you can buy a ticket on eventbrite.co.uk, B-R-I-T-E, and we will send out a link to that in the mailing list. So sign up to the Quickly Kevin mailing list on quicklykevin.com. Yes, Sunday, 20th of December, 8pm. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash quicklykevin, and you could end the year in a pair of Graham Taylor England 92-94 tracksuit bottoms. Brilliant. So shall we move on? To the old electronic post bag. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the electronic post bag. You've got mail. I know this stretches, this is from James Morgan. I know this stretches the 90s theme slightly, but as part of your project to build the perfect ground, I'd like to highlight this. After the closure of the Millennium Dome, Gillingham's ever frugal chairman, Paul Scally. Oh, yes purchased a reported £7 million worth of fixtures of fittings from the White Elephant for just £750,000. This included the 1.5, in quotes, 1.5 million play area of the dome, measuring 80 metres by 40 metres, bought for just 70000 to be turned in to an indoor training centre for the team. Scally claimed it took 100 trips to transport everything in a 7.5 tonne truck. The distinctive yellow bins you'd encounter on a free school trip to the dome still adorn the forecourts of Priestfield to this day. Really? That's amazing. What yeah. a great email. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I, I spent uh, my New Year's, would have, so it would have been 2000, December 2000, in the Millennium Dome. Did you? After what, with Tony Blair? After, it was the year after, maybe two oh. years after. But, but basically, they after the sort of big ceremony, they stripped it all out, so it was gutted inside. Yeah. And, and somebody had essentially turned it into like one giant rave a legal rave but it was just a series of tents and i've never got so ill in my life as i did it was so fucking cold in there it was (laughs) freezing just huddled up in the corner dying of hypothermia one of the worst nights of my life that my then girlfriend's dad had to come and pick us up he drove all the way from hertfordshire to the millennium dome to pick me up because i thought i was going to be hospitalized oh wow (laughs) um i've got a good dome fact for you Uh, One of the things they had was they had the world's biggest billboard, right? Which was a huge picture of Richmond Park. And uh, when they blew up the picture of Richmond Park to the size of the billboard, there was a a naked man in the woods that you'd only see when it was blown up to such a big size. (laughs) That's got to be an urban myth. 100% true. No one noticed it. So there was an actual no, naked no, they, they noticed it when they blew it up, but yeah. you can see it on the small version. I've always wondered, that guy, obviously, do you think he knew that that photo was being taken or was he completely oblivious at the time? Oh, I don't and if they know. just used a kind of a, a, a high-res stock footage, so neither the man nor the photographer had any idea that that photo yeah was. i don't know i don't know what the, i don't know. have you ever been on like a you know a bus or a sort of tourist destination and someone's taking a photo and you're like i know i was in that photo i know i'm in that stranger's photo and i always sort of been curious about the fact that like somewhere somewhere in the world i might be in a picture on a stranger's wall and yeah. they, they have no idea like who i am and i used to have this daydream of like going on an airbnb and staying somewhere looking on someone's wall 
and they're just being a picture of me in like Parliament <laughs> Square in the background. Well, um, yeah, I went to Beijing probably like 2010, and it's such a cliche. You hear people who say this a bit of China, like when you're taller, tall and white. Like I walked through Tiananmen Square, and about I'm not joking, like five or six people asked me to have a picture with, like, have a picture with me. And I was with like a tour guide. I said, "Why? The, what do they do with these pictures?" And they said, "They'll go back to their remote Chinese village, and they'll say, show everyone in the village, look, I met a tall white European, and they may even put your picture up on the wall." So I, I often, I often think that it's a remote like part of China. There's a fireplace there, and a picture of me. But who knows? <laughs> oh wow! Like they've met Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing I was going to say, which is, is, I guess this is more eight. Well, it is eighties. But Michael, you must know this fact about Teen Wolf that at the end of Teen oh, Wolf, yeah, yeah. when Michael J. Fox is like is celebrating, there's a man in the crowd in the background who walks down some steps as everyone's celebrating and gets his knob out for for a brief moment and tucks it back in. But even now, when it's repeated on Sky, the guy you can still see the guy's knob. You can still, he still gets it out. So I guess that's a little bit like the uh, the Richmond Park incident. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I didn't expect this Millennium Dome stuff to do as well. <laughs> okay, uh, we've got lots of long throw-ins. I think what we might do is we might do a long throwing correspondence special between the series. How does that sound? Oh, another wow. one. Well, whole just special. just a whole episode because we do need because it's such a hot topic. But um, we can only scratch it. And the problem is, whenever I bring it up again, it leads to a flurry of emails. So while I'm chipping away at it, it actually makes the whole situation worse. There's so much good stuff. This is from Guy Club. Great name. Ever since the topic of long throws came up on the pod, I've been having flashbacks to a vague throw-in-related memory from my childhood. So I have a throw-in-related jingle, please. Do I remember this right? 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 Right, this right. I have a distinct memory from around 1990-91, whilst watching an episode of Record Breakers, or perhaps a similar show from my childhood, You Bet or Blue Peter, I witnessed a long throwing competition that featured Ipswich fullback Neil Thompson. Despite Neil Thompson being famous for his rather more impressive eyebrows and thrones from my Ipswich sporting household at the time, I still remember being extremely excited that an Ipswich player was seen as one of the top flight's elite. What makes the memory even more odd is that I'm pretty sure it took place inside a packed Wembley stadium with each participant fully kitted in his team's home kit. Sure, this must have taken place half-time during a major final and that people hadn't flocked to the stadium to see the competition take place. I'm not sure what the qualifying criteria is, but I just keep thinking how horrible and degrading it must have been for all the participants to travel to Wembley for the cup final they're waiting to take part in, get geared up and walk out half-time to take a long throw in front of rival fans. Uh, do I remember this right? Guys, have you got any memory of this? But they did do, they had a 100-metre race, didn't they? At, uh, they when did. I think it was the League Cup final, which was won by Carl Lee- Lieburn. So there's form there. It sounds like the kind of thing that could be possible. Well, is Tony Beeching talking about the same incident? Because he talks about... Um, have a distant memory of Andy Legg breaking the world record in a throw-in on an episode of Record Breakers. I cannot find any footage, but to look at Andy Legg's Wikipedia page suggests there was actually both Andy Legg and Dave Challoner that took part in a competition alongside a player called Neil Thompson. Oh! So there was there is footage somewhere of a phantom episode of Record Breakers where Andy Legg, Dave Challoner, 
and Neil Thompson completed in a full Wembley in a long throwing competition. There's enough circumstantial evidence there to suggest this is possible. Yeah. Do you think what's happened is like, you know, when you went to the San Siro, Josh, they've gone and filmed that episode in the half time at Wembley to get the kind of atmosphere. Okay. Yeah, I I can believe that. I don't remember it, but I can believe it. I've done that three times now. I've done it twice for um, League of Their Own and once for Last Leg. And it's so thrilling how little time you have at half time. Because by the times the team have gone off and everything's been set up, you've got about 10 minutes with all getting on, filming, everything. It's so tight. So the thought of Dave Challoner trying to break a world record, but also under the huge jurisdiction of the Wembley bots that are trying to get them off the pitch as fast as possible. I'd love to see footage. I was chatting to Matt Ford about this. I would think we should launch a campaign to make half times longer. Do you not think 15 minutes is not long enough? Especially if you want to go grab a pint or something like that. You need half hour, really. I don't want a half hour half time. No? No. 20 minutes? No. I do 98% of my football watching on TV, so I'd ideally have no half time. Yes, I accept your point. I take it back. I'd like to start a campaign for uh, the 90s Football Olympics, <laughs> where we, we have a series of different events. Oh, so we yes. have the long throw challenge. We have the goal kick challenge, pass back challenge, just a, just a straight running yeah. race. Oh, that uh, The Paul Scally challenge, how much stuff you can get out of the O2 in an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see from Market Sweep for Paul Scally. So if anyone's got any suggestions for events and participants, please let us know. Um, if you want to get in touch, this is how. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Okay, uh, we don't just get our correspondence via the electronic post bag. Uh, the Quickly Kevin Forum, which is open to Patreon members, is a hive of 90s football chat. Each uh, week, I do like to read out my favourite posting. This will blow your mind from Patreon member Bobby Hundreds. <laughs> I'm just going to read you the intro and then uh, I'll tell you a, a couple of things. And you can <laughs> Bobby tell Hundreds really makes me laugh. Yeah. So he says, as a test, I've moved Steve Bruce in the editor of Championship Manager 97-98 to Real Madrid at the start of the game. I've not edited anything about his managerial stats other than his style as passing, which I wasn't sure it would work without. Steve Bruce is listed as a player in the game, but he's a managerial entry to the editor too. I've holidayed the season, and I have no control over Real Madrid. And now, it's the summer of 1997. Former Manchester United legend Steve Bruce has reached a crossroads in his life. Does he carry on as player at Birmingham despite it dwindling pace? Does he quit professional football to continue to pursue his dreams of being an award-winning author? His mind is racing that summer. Would the earning of the book sales be enough to ensure his beloved XJ8? Out of nowhere came an unbelievable opportunity. On one fateful evening, during a family holiday to St Ives, Bruce had a call at the front desk of his hotel. On the other end of the line was Lorenzo Sanz, the Real Madrid president. Mr Bruce, I need you. So, this guy, Bobby Hundreds, has basically simulated what would have happened if Steve Bruce had taken over at Real Madrid in 1997-98 and put screen grabs and a description of how Steve Bruce fared over his season on the forum. Love it. So I I won't take you through too much of it, but it does start uh, with a 2-2 draw and then he does sign Rui Costa, who then gets injured. But basically it's one of the great reads I've ever had because Bobby Hundreds has basically played out the whole season, put screen grabs, 
and descriptions of how Real Madrid got on throughout the season. <laughs> it's, it's astonishing the effort he's gone to. He also, Steve Bruce, signs Perez Munez Alfonso, that most expensive player on the game that no one's ever heard of. <laughs> oh, wow. After seven games, Real Madrid sit sixth. I will leave it there. If you want to read more, it is on the forum. But that is genuinely unbelievable work from Bobby Hundreds. Thank you for that. I love that. Bobby Hundreds, if you want to get in touch, I'm going to send you a, a, a Letters for Town mug. There as we a, go. As a thank oh. you. I don't know. It's great content. Okay. Now it's time for the 90s o'clock news. Headquarters of ITN News at 10 with Chris Scull. Paul Walsh rebrands. <laughs> <laughs> Maradona's goal of the Century 86 shirt not for sale. And a huge goal of note in the Persian League. <laughs> okay. okay. Our top story today. And uh, I actually feel a bit, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. Paul Walsh has rebranded. Tweet on the 3rd of December. Less of all the doom... Here's me as an apprentice at Charlton, just about to turn pro. 41 years ago, this was the most exciting time of my life. And a lovely little picture of him as a, as a young man. And ever since, Paul Walsh has just been tweeting nice things about his career. He says, oh, uh, here he I am. Knows, I was nearly knows. released at 14 for being too small. Hashtag never give up. Picture of him at 14. He's become self-aware. I don't like it. It's like Skynet. I don't like it. I think I think someone's told him. I think someone's told him. And it, you know what? It's lovely. It's, it's him taking morning walks, like filming himself um, down the harbour uh, on a ferry. Uh, he's, I mean, he's loving, he's, he's loving life. I think he's rebranded. I would never obviously wish death on anyone, but there is going to come a time when the next footballing great dies and will Walsh's trigger finger be poised. <laughs> It's going to be a sliding doors moment for Paul Walsh's rebrand. It's going to be a sliding doors moment for Paul Walsh's rebrand. Well, it's sad to see uh, Paul Walsh, the Grim Reaper of football, go, but um, it's it's nice. I, I think someone must have told him. Surely, eh? Surely. Or maybe he listens. And if you do, Paul, we hope you took it in the right way. Yes. Yeah, we love you. Come on. You're a positive man. Come on the show. We 100% take you on the show. Um, do you want our next top story? You'll know this bit of trivia, Josh. Who who owns Maradona's shirt from the World Cup quarterfinal against England? In uh, someone like, I want to say Steve Hodge or Terry Fennick or something like that. You've got it in one. Steve oh. Hodge. And he's done an interview with uh, BBC Radio Nottingham to say people are asking him to sell it and it is not for sale. He said he's had people knocking on his door. He said calls from every TV and radio station. The foreign stations are ringing him up. He says it's disrespectful and totally wrong. It's not for sale. I'm not trying to sell it. This in spite of the fact that people are valuing that shirt at £2 million. What? Wow. Which is more money, it's speculated, than Steve Hodge earned in his career. That's worth two million. I've just sent you a picture that accompanies this article, and thank you to Alan McCall for sending it in. And can you just describe to me, Josh, the picture that accompanies the article of Steve Hodge? I mean, it's amazing. It's not. For, it's from presumably back in the day, right? It's certainly not from yesterday. So what I'm looking at, not not for the first time in my life, is a topless picture of Steve Hodge, right? <laughs> you and Pornhub. <laughs> Um, so he's in, he's topless apart from a, a gold necklace and he's wearing a pair of jeans without a belt that are, he's wearing at the level of his belly button. <laughs> I was just about yeah, to point that. It's too high. They're too high. 
And he's holding Diego Maradona's number 10 shirt that's filthy in the way you would hold it if you'd just signed for the club. It's such a bizarre picture. Why have they asked him to take his shirt off? <laughs> he's turned up in it. <laughs> Do you think it was that? They said, come on, Steve, let's have a... Steve, Steve, for the love of God, don't eat spaghetti in it, mate. It's worth two million quid. Don't get anything on it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think Steve Hodge turned up to the photo shoot wearing the Maradona 86 and he didn't have a spare shirt? Because they want to see the number 10 on the back. But wouldn't you just go, Steve, turn around and do the classic pointing of the thumbs at the 10? (laughs) I'd sell it. How much joy are you getting at, even if he's wearing it out? I mean, there's no piece of clothing that's bringing two million pounds worth of joy. Like, how often is he even looking at it? How, here's the mad thing. You know, it's, it's on display at the National Football Museum. So he's not even got it. So he's not even in his house. I mean, not that you would put that in your house because... Unless Hodge has had a lot of discussion, he's realised that it's only going to increase in value. I mean, I bet it has in the last two weeks. Maybe Diego Maradona's shirt is actually a better investment than property. And I think it probably is. But he can't say that. So he has to say, I'm not selling because I'm attached to it. He can't go, "Yeah, I'm sorry, but I've spoken to our financial advisor and they say this is a better investment than selling it. But also you say like, oh, is Steve Hodge keeping a little nest egg for retirement? He's been retired for 20 years. Minimum, isn't it? Probably 30 years he's been retired. Like, if he thinks he's fine, he's fine financially. I don't know what Steve Hodge is up to. I haven't, to be honest, thought about him did he make the 1990 squad? But certainly not since... And I don't want to say this is the defining moment of his life and the shirt, but his autobiography is called The Man with Maradona's Shirt. No. <laughs> yeah, fact. No. Is it, is it seriously yeah. called that? I mean, it's thinking, again, he's advertising it, isn't he? He's trying to drive the value up and it's working. Is he topless on the front cover? <laughs> <laughs> I think the reason it's in the National History Museum, National Football Museum, is... Steve Hodge has made himself too much of a target for breaking. So if it's not publicly elsewhere, there's no way Hodge could have that in his house. Yeah, that's a good point. The insurance on that alone would be tens of thousands of pounds a month, surely. Yeah. I mean, where's Steve? He's not living in a castle, is he, or a fort? No. He's on 80s no. footballers' wages. Yeah. We'd love any more on Steve Hodge and his shirt. What is the uh, final news story? So the last news story is breaking news. Thank you to Chris Slowly for sending this in. There's a goal of note happened. Um, you guys, have you been catching the Persian match of the day over the last couple of weeks? I haven't, no. Uh, no, you, I haven't. You know Nadir Mohammadi from Pakyan? He scored an interesting goal that is really, I think you're going to enjoy this. I'm going to send you the clip now. If you could do me the honour of explaining what you see. So this is Nadir Mohammadi in the Persian Pro League. Oh, so he runs up. He does one of those somersault throws, throws it. Oh, and it's gone directly in. But I think the goalie's stupidly got a touch. That's exactly what's happened. And the goal stood. Goal, oh. goal, half, Serjan, goalkeeper, Alarezi, Haghigi. Oh, my God, he got a touch. What was got he thinking? Touch. Shades of, uh, was it Peter Enkelman? For Villa a few years ago, do you oh, remember that? I think. Well, didn't Peter Enkelman just didn't it just go under his foot? It did, but his studs touched it, and that's why oh, it counted. I see, I see. Yes, yeah, it's similar to that. And it also, this is one of those rules, isn't it? Like you said, yeah. rules that we were discussing. This rules that stick in your mind is that if you throw it directly in, it doesn't count. But if you get a touch, it does count. That is one of those rules in ingrained in my memory. Yeah, so that's that's a perfect synergy of the last two weeks. <laughs> Uh, in the Persian uh, top division. Well, that is phenomenal. Because I, 
that's that's going to be the strongest week, I think, for the 90s o'clock news. Yeah, if you've got any more, do send them in. Hello at quicklykevin.com and we will have a look on our news desk. Now, we've wanted this man on for a long time. Um, absolutely brilliant comedian. And also, it's very Anglo-centric, our show, isn't it? We get told that a lot by uh, Scots listeners. So we've got a German. Sorry, Scottish people. We're still struggling. I might add, we have text Ali McCoist. So the wheels are in motion. But we will get there. We will get there. But here is Henning Venn talking about Germany in the 90s. Our guest this week is one of the best imports in the history of British comedy, former Wickham Wanderers marketing department employee and our first guest to whom Euro 96 was a perfect summer. It's our pleasure to welcome to Quickly Kevin, Henning Venn. Hello. Hello. Henning, on paper, you had a better 90s than us football-wise. Without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, and 80s and 70s. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> 2000s. Yeah, 2000 and the 2010s. And yeah. But six, 20s, six... they might be yours. Oh, yeah, fingers crossed. We were, I think we were, we were owed a few. 60s, though, 66? Did it cross the line? Did that ever bother you? What happened then? What happened in 66? <laughs> I don't care about it. I don't care about it. Um, we always like to start with the same question, which is, have you ever met a 90s footballer? Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I actually, the best thing I've ever done, hmm. uh, and I'm happy to, I mean, I'm happy to die tomorrow because I worked with Lauter Mateus. Oh, um, wow. We were travelling together around Europe uh, for, it was for um, some hotel, um I mean, that's not a very good campaign if I can't even remember. When we were, uh... <laughs> you were mainly focused on Lothar Mateus. Well, yeah, I mean, I was absolutely, I mean, I was absolutely, what's the word? Betwixt? Is that not the word? <laughs> yeah, that'll do. Yeah. <laughs> Second language, that's a good word to reach for. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it was absolutely sensational going around Europe with Lothar Mateus, and it was for what are the cheap version of the Marriott hotels called? Are they Courtyard Marriott? Let's let's go with it. Yeah, I don't okay. Know. So he, he he got asked if he could imagine traveling around Europe and uh, uh, do this thing, finding football, it was called. And uh, so then his agent then said, yes, Lothar can imagine doing it, but he's not going to stay in a Courtyard Marriott. <laughs> <laughs> High standards. <laughs> and then, essentially, every morning, they, they booked him the best hotel in town. Every morning, he would turn up there in a the cab, then at the courtyard Marriott for the start of the shoot. And then at the end of the evening, he would go back to the uh, to the best hotel in town. But, I mean, <laughs> see, whatever I've done uh, since moving to to Britain and, and all the people you meet is... So, so back home, no one ever gives, I mean, cares at all, really. But when that became knowledge that I was traveling around Europe with Lauter Mateus, I the number of phone calls I received of people that were outright jealous. And <laughs> I, I say, I mean, because Lauter Mateus for me is, is like a boiled hero. And yeah, cool. uh, yeah. so then because he, he won the Euros back in 1980 and then obviously World Cup 1990 and and so on and so forth. And then 
also because he's such a he's such an iconic person he's quite a, i'm not like totally a, a, across his reputation but he's quite a kind of hard character were you nervous of him or oh yeah because you know full well he's going he can, he can flip any moment but <laughs> it's uh but at the same time he does it all in a very controlled manner so if yeah. <laughs> so, so you are he just keeps everyone in check i honestly i've been traveling around with him for for a fortnight i haven't got a bad word to say at all i thought it was an absolute master class in everything wow wow that must have been such an experience. Did he know who you were before it started? No. <laughs> so, and I mean, he lives in Germany, but and actually lives in Hungary. But um, no, there would be absolutely no reason for him to know who I am. He's not a fan of what I lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Henning, who were you in the playground as a kid? What kind of games did you play? And who, who did you really look up to? Who did you emulate? Uh... Well, I mean, the games you play essentially was goal po- uh, jumpers for goalposts. Yeah. And uh, so we're living near a park. And uh, so you were just playing, I don't know, three aside, four aside, wherever many kids there were. And uh, then we also had a proper full-size pitch, uh, Hagen Elf. That's the, the name of my uh, boyhood team. And uh, so essentially we were, we were playing there in the, youth, in the youth department, in the under six, under eights, and so on and so forth. And you would just do... Silly games like trying to, I don't know, from the penalty spot, try and hit the crossbar or the post or something like that. So all the... Penalties from a young age. That's how you guys do it. You're already <laughs> practicing for the penalty spot. There's the secret. Yeah. There's <laughs> the, the, what always amuses me when you play like uh, low level, like low Saturday league or, or Sunday league. So and then we used to uh, have training twice a week. And the sort of the drills, the the managers always worked out. It was just, I mean, that, that's just not happening. Like, for example, like one of them was you stand 30, 30 yards away from goal, you pass the ball to a teammate who is essentially on the 18-yard box, lays it off for you, you run through and then kick the ball on goal. I mean, have you ever seen Sunday League football? Goals are not scored from outside the area. <laughs> So that is an absolutely pointless exercise. I mean, if you could score from out there, you wouldn't be playing at that level. You would be much higher. So, so, and that always cracked me up. Like we were, we were practicing things that were absolutely inconceivable that we could ever pull them off on the weekend. So it was like, it's a funny thing, isn't it? That then that they watch something on telly and, and then they think, no, they can, they can do one-to-one, do exactly the same thing with a Saturday or Sunday league sign, and that is just hilarious. And that, funnily enough, coming back to Lothar Mateus, one of the things we did was uh, we went to a virtual reality football thing in the Netherlands, where the idea is they want to bring youth team players, want to make them get used to the pro level at the top end and also players recovering from injuries. So what it is is, you stand there with a the face mask on, then they give you, like you're at real life speed, someone passes the ball to you and then you have got three options, so you can turn around and have got three oh, wow. options, A, B or C, where to play the ball to. And then you have to shout what, uh, so A or B or C. And um, so it's essentially you're doing the move in real time, like like a pro footballer would. And one of the things was, so the, the ball comes to me in that, in that scenario and, 
then A, B, or C. So and I just pass the ball sideways. But then the correct answer would have been you played over the defender into and I saw that there was a, that there was a striker running, but because me is me. I know I wouldn't be able to get that past that defender. So I couldn't play <laughs> over the top of the defender. So I laid off to the side. And then you had to get in your head, okay, I'm actually a world-class player for the purpose of this. So if <laughs> every, single, every single decision I make will be wrong, so to speak. <laughs> um, you were born in Hagen, is it? Yeah. Uh, West Germany. But it contains, is it six... Bundesliga teams. Leverkusen. Yeah, it's about like twenty pro teams. And how? Who did you end up supporting, and how? I made a massive mistake. Um, <laughs> I support Schalke. Yes. And oh. our town is essentially divided. Half the people support uh, Dortmund, the other half support Schalke. And oh. uh, yeah, as I say, I made a massive mistake. <laughs> <laughs> how, who would you compare Schalke to? For English listeners, if they, if Schalke were a Premier League well, team, well, the town Gelsenkirchen is twin. Where Schalke is from is twin town twin with Newcastle, because they're right. both former mining towns. And Schalke has got a bit of the Newcastle about it. Yes, uh, right. So right. we were wait, we were waiting our on 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 the on the title now since 1958. You won a, I think you won a year you for cup or oh, something. You for cup year 97, but uh, yeah. I mean, what you want to do is we've won the league seven times, but as I say, last time was in '58, and uh, I mean, we, we, we forgot to build a bit. <laughs> <laughs> then you look at the national team, and most of the players come from from Schalke youth department. It's just we yeah. can't hold on to any of them. And Gelsenkirchen is a town. It's a town of only two hundred thousand inhabitants. So there is no other town that has got more national team players than Gelsenkirchen. In regards to wow. where they were born, so and what's Gelsen that all Kirchen, about? More than Berlin, so Gelsenkirchen, two hundred thousand people, Berlin, three million. Still, there is more national team players who were, were born in 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 Gelsenkirchen. Oh, wow! And and on that, are you kind of sad? The fact that Schalke haven't been as successful as the German national team, does it? How do you feel when Germany is successful versus Schalke? Would you rather the national team was successful than your club team? Yeah, it was always countries more yeah. important. Yeah, which is, I think, is very different attitude compared to the one in England, where it's club more important than uh, than country. But that, no, that in Germany is definitely the other way around. But is that because you're winning so much internationally? That is obviously why, that is why <laughs> a lot of people in England are more interested in how their club side is doing, yeah. I mean, in the end of the day, what does it matter which German side wins the German league? Because, because it's bound to be a German side winning the German league. So yes. really that doesn't give you any bragging rights abroad. Whilst no. if the national team do well and you live abroad, it's almost as if you score them all yourself. <laughs> um, you moved to the UK for a footballing reason. So you, you got a job at Wickham Wanderers. Yes. You applied, is this right in saying you applied to all 92 league clubs? Yes. So, how many rejection letters did you get from that 92? <laughs> I've still got a few. Uh, I've actually still got a few here, like Rick Perry from Liverpool. And, 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 oh, wow. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but and what, what happened your... was I've always um, worked in sports slash football uh, back home. And then the company I was working for, they were about to go under. And I looked at my CV and it looked all right, but I didn't speak English other than very basic school English. Then I thought, well, I really should go to Blighty for a few months to pick up 
the language. And uh, so that, with that in mind, I applied to the 92 league clubs. And uh, yeah, then we got a few interviews in and around London and then got very, very lucky and scored a job at Wickham Wanderers. And that oh, was wow. perfect timing. Wow. Because that was back in 2002, the year after they had their famous cup run. That was then when the club tried to, for the first time, they employed a CEO. Until that point, the club was always run by the chairman's PA. And then they tried <laughs> to become more professional. So and my English was poor. And all I could offer really was a research project. I could say, well, I can speak to your stakeholders and establish with them where they see the club and where they would like the club to go, so and how to how the club to develop. So and I was very lucky that Wickham had no customer data at all, and oh, wow. the the CEO was very had a very strong marketing background, and he said, "Yeah, that's exactly what we need." So I was very lucky there. Oh wow! Who else did you interview with? West Ham, Arsenal. Oh, so, and then obviously, if you have got all them on the table, you go Wickham Wanderers, don't you? <laughs> 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 no decision to be made. Is it fun working at a football club? Well, I think if you're on the sport side, it's uh, obviously very stressful because it's very results driven, obviously. Mm. And uh, you have you can personally influence the outcome of a score. But if you work in marketing, that's very difficult. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, no one can say, oh, Oh, you played shit on the weekend. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Did you end up supporting Wickham as a result of it? Or? Yeah, so still, still uh, in, in touch with the club and with Gareth Gagger, Ainsworth, the manager, and uh, Matt Bloomfield, and then lots of people from behind the scenes, they're still the same. Have you done any German scouting for them? Have you had a little look at the German league and said, hey, this is one to watch? Uh, well, they've had one German player, Max Müller, um, yeah, and then he got uh, loaned out to Morecambe, and now he's back in Germany playing for Astoria Waldorf, you know, <laughs> the, the, the town after which the the, the Waldorf salad is uh, is named. No, I, I would be prepared though to start a scouting operation. I mean, what I, what I would credit myself for talking about fighting talk mm. many many years ago uh, on fighting talk. I had seen the weekend before. I had seen. Folkestone in Victor play Worthing because I had a gig in Folkestone in the evening. And there was one player who I thought was heads and shoulders above the rest, uh, uh, Mickey uh, Dimitriou. So, and mm. then I mentioned him on Fighting Talk. I thought, that's a player, he'll go far. And now he's the captain for Newport County. Look at that. <laughs> and wow. Too. So I spotted him on tier seven. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I see quality. <laughs> So let, let's go back to Germany in the 90s. Or let's go before that, because I think what's really interesting is obviously uh, before 1990, was Germany was obviously two different countries. How did that affect both countries, East and West Germany? Like, were they, you, you're obviously a West Germany, but what was it like to be part of that? Well, it was, well, obviously very emotional, seeing the wall come down and all that. Mm. And, uh, uh, well, leave all that aside. Let's just sing this as a football podcast. Let's talk yes. about football. And the most important thing, as we've established, is the national team. And after mm. we won World Cup 1990, Beckenbauer, the manager, said, and with the arrival of the East German players, we will be unbeatable for years to come. Now, and you can't leave the job having said that and then leave your successor to deal with that statement. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, and he done that to poor Bertie Folks. 
And Folks yeah. and Bettenborough were in the same team in 74 when uh, they won the World Cup. And yeah, then for Folks, it was an uphill battle ever since that statement, because then in 1992, made it to the uh, final of, of the Euros, lost that quite inexplicably to Denmark. And then that was seen like uh, uh, a national humiliation. And then it was very hard for him to recover. But despite saying all that, he was in charge of three tournaments, uh, four tournaments, and he won at least one, 96. We take it. So how many, were East Germany any good uh, as a yeah, national Yeah, well, the team? story was, um, the wall did come down in November 89, but German, the German reunification was until October 1990. Now, at that stage in 89, East Germany still had a, realist, had a realistic prospect of qualifying for Italia 90. But then there was so much upheaval going on within the squad and uh, it, it, the, the dressing room was apparently like a bazaar where just player, uh, uh, where just agents walked in and out and it was absolute chaos because everyone just tried to maximize their earning potential that uh, then they couldn't get their shit together and then uh, lost to Belgium and then didn't make it to 1990. And that sadly in a way has been the story not only in football, but across the whole society and economy. Essentially, the West walked in and mm. bought whatever they could do with and uh, left the rest behind. So they were just optimizing their own, their own financial situation yeah. without any consideration for, for, for East German society. And that, that's why there is, well, it still feels like two Germanys, yeah. because those wounds, they still haven't healed properly. Would you watch East German games? Would you cheer on East Germany? Was there any kind of rivalry with was the again, West? Was very much one-way traffic. The East Germans were travelling to the... Whenever a West German side was playing anywhere in the Warsaw Pact, there would be hundreds and thousands of East Germans go and support them. Oh, wow. But that wouldn't work. The other, that wouldn't happen the other way around because essentially... We didn't know anything about East Germany, like especially where I lived in the far in the west, fairly close to the Dutch border. You might as well have asked me if I support a Chinese side. I mean, yeah, you, you, <laughs> you, I mean, you knew them, you knew them all, you knew all the clubs and whatnot and the names, on, but it wasn't on telly or nothing. And you, where I lived, I couldn't get East German television. Whilst everywhere in East Germany, they could get West German television, except for in Dresden. And that was called Tal der Ahnungslos and Welly of the Ilinformed or Welly <laughs> of the Clueless. So, so Italia 90 comes along. That was the tournament where the East German fans were in the stands because they could obviously leave East Germany ever oh, since right, uh, yeah. November 89. And there was hundreds and thousands of them uh, making their way to Italy. Wow. Oh, wow. And did you, were you confident that this, you know, Germany obviously went, West Germany went on to win it? Was it? Was there confidence in the nation in this team? Beforehand? It was all very overwhelming as in the wall had come down. We're really on to something. And then when then Mateo scored that uh, the goal against Yugoslavia in their 4-1 drubbing mm. in, the open, in, in, in the first game, you knew that team was actually unbeatable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there, and was, there was never any doubt at all. What? 
They're definitely well, any different than winning the thing. For well, round of 16, Netherlands. That was a, right, a famous game, one of the most famous games in Italia 90. We never thought when you kind of Rudy Voller and Rijkaard got sent off, were you not like, oh, hang on, no, could be in trouble was, here now? There was just too much quality. Then all of a sudden you have the left back like Buchwald going forward and all that. There was every one of them was a world-class player. Yeah. I w- I've never believed in a team that I support in that way, where you can just yeah, be like... Never- <laughs> <laughs> that's that kind of sense of belief is just so alien to me. Yeah, but and that's you're- essentially... Look, I grew. I, I was born in 74. That is, we won the title in 74. Obviously, I don't know nothing about that. But the first tournament I really remember is 80, the Euros. We won that. 82 <laughs> in the final... 84, uh, did make it out to group stages after last-minute goal conceded against Spain. And you've got 86 again, we make it into the final, 88 semi-final, and then 1990, you knew, I mean, A, the whole idea that you would go home before a semi-final, that still is, is totally alien to me. <laughs> you have such a different existence. I, I cannot conceive, really, us not being in at least in the semi-final. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you face the Netherlands, who are basically you know, just European champions, they've got Hullet, Rijkaard, uh, Van Basten, Koeman, I suppose. Yeah. And you're not thinking this this is a bad draw in the second round? No, because you think the Dutch will be thinking that far more than we will. Yeah. And then you yeah. have got Lauter Mateus. And then, you know, it, I mean, he just stands. I mean, if, the moment you see him on the pitch, you know you're going to win. Such <laughs> <laughs> Can I just ask a question about the Dutch? Because what is interesting to me is that the Dutch and the German rivalry is almost the strongest rivalry in international football, I'd say. Mm. That is it's really intense, isn't it? Is that a political thing or is that a, a sporting thing or is that everything that's come together? Like, how's that? Well, you really grown? have to ask the Dutch more than the, the Germans on that one. The Dutch always try and bring politics into it. From a German point of view, is well... Like, you can't really say there is a footballing rivalry between England and Germany. There isn't, because Germany has been to 14 major finals, England to one. That is not a rivalry. (laughs) (laughs) That is just completely How do you feel about us, Henning? Before you moved over, so 1990, when you reached the semi-finals and you're playing England, and we're going, oh, the old enemy, you know, Germany, the big... Are you going, that's the equivalent to playing Spain or Italy? or like? Do you have any strong feelings towards the England England as a national well, team? Funny, I mean, funny you should mention Italy. I would say the strongest footballing rivalry for Germany is, uh, other than the Netherlands, is, is Italy. Really? Because, wow. well, we have got a terrible track record against them and Euros uh, 2016 was the first time ever we beat Italy in a major tournament. Wow. Until then, that was on penalties. So other than that, we've lost to them every single time or drew with them. But it was always ne- it was never enough. And that started in 1970 with the uh, 4-3 after extra time, uh, which called it the Jahrhundertspiel, the, the game of the century. But, I mean, it's not much of a game of a century if you end up losing. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, probably defeat of the century, we should call it. And uh, <laughs> 2006, our bloody home World Cup, they pissed on our chips. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing the kind of hierarchy of who you consider to be your rivals. So then you get to play a little team, you know, little old England in the semi-final 
Where are you watching this World Cup, by the way? So you're 16. What's your kind of situation? Are you watching it? Uh, watching it uh, first time that you start going to pubs. So that was my first yeah. World Cup in pubs. And uh, yeah, so and then I remember the, the, the England game well and um, watched it in a pub. And it was great, but you almost took it for granted. Really? Yeah. Because you think, well, that's not the game we want to win. It's the next one we want to win. But you obviously first yeah. have to get to the next one. That yeah. always makes me laugh when I remember in 2006, I watched England, who were they playing? Trinidad and Tobago or whoever in the yeah, opening yeah, yeah, game? Yeah, that was, uh, and the opening game was, um, oh, it was someone like Slovenia or Slovakia. So it was one of the Eastern European teams. In 2006, yeah. Oh, it was Paraguay. It was Paraguay, actually. It was Paraguay. Paraguay. And then I remember the English commentators saying, the first game is always the most, is always the hardest. And that made me laugh so much because I think, well, you'll find the longer you go on in the tournament, the harder the games will get. <laughs> <laughs> so playing Paraguay will not be the hardest game of all. If it is, you haven't got a long tournament. So. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask about this, the semi-final Italian 90 because obviously England, England, West Germany, that game is mythologised in English culture. Everybody knows about it. There's been documentaries made about it. What place in history does that game have in Germany, if any? So I don't, I, I obviously, I know I have to uh, play you to the audience. You don't need to be polite. Yeah. It's really, I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the one, be, beating the Dutch, that is great. And then winning the thing, that's great. Yeah, but, and that was just a bit in between. That was an intermission. It was yeah, just... Yeah, it was like you had to win there to get to the big one. <laughs> and, and so when it came to the shootout, um, I mean, we... Never in doubt. Uh, Never yeah. in doubt. Never in doubt do, at all. Do you get nervous when Germany are in a penalty shootout? Or do you still have this level of confidence that it's going to be fine? Well, I'm, I just assume they have practised. So, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's just... It's, but that, that's also that's a thing in, in, in English psychology when you say it's the lottery. But it's not a lottery, is it? It's not as if someone randomly draws some numbers. <laughs> it's essentially still six people of each side are involved, the goalie and five takers. Yeah, so it's yeah. not, you say, oh, it's a, it's a penalty lottery. Yeah, but I mean, no, it's not a lottery. It's actually, <laughs> it's actually always, a discipline. It wound yeah. me up for years that you can't recreate the pressure. And you're like, well, no, but you can't recreate the pressure of the Ryder Cup or you can't recreate the pressure of, you know, uh, the World Snooker Championship or darts or any of these things where you just have to stand and do something. Mm. and. So you might as well just say, well, let's never practice sport. I find it absolutely. <laughs> and also, yeah. we're, why are we offering opinions? Why are we offering the world opinions on how to do penalties? We're so bad at it. Or we were. <laughs> I realise we beat Colombia and, and undone 20 years of bad work. But, um, I mean, we had Peter Shilton diving after the ball. That was the most embarrassing bit. You, sorry, Henning, you've set me off about an irrelevant <laughs> game, apparently. Um, so you get to the final which is probably the worst World Cup final in the history of World Cup finals. Does that you matter to you? You must have forgotten the one in, uh, which was the Brazil-Italy, 94? 94 in America, was bad. yes. Yeah. Okay, it's, it's cynical, it's dirty, and it's it's not a good game. But it's got Mateos and Diego Maradona on the pitch. I mean, yes. that is not a bad combination, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> so do you remember that game like, was that was that the that's the first World Cup you saw Germany win? That must have been an amazing experience, or was it? 
You that you must have been confident with that as well because Argentina weren't. Well, we lost to them four years previously in the final, mm. but there had been a, a big change of uh, change of our players, and uh, and funnily enough, then you have someone like Beckenbauer as the manager, and I know he was also the manager in '86, but you just can't see it go wrong. Yeah, yeah. But what happens when Germany win the World Cup? Is there like a public holiday, or is it just it happens so often no one even notices? No, everyone's well up for it. And then obviously, so where's the Euros in two years' time? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get confidently onto the Euros. Were you as confident going into Euro 92? Well, I think I, like everyone else, got swept along by that stupid, stupid statement of saying we'll be unbeatable for years to come. That Beckenbauer came up with after the World Cup 90. And, And then you thought, well, Denmark in the final... Denmark hadn't even qualified for the tournament, did they? They were only in it because Yugoslavia got disqualified. And so they've already been on holidays. And then you say, yeah, well, they're obviously not feeling much pressure because they've just come from on, they were already on their holidays. Then Sweden is friendly with Denmark anyway, and it's just neighboring countries. And you think for them, it's just the right old jolly. So they essentially, they they had nothing to lose. Well, Germany had a lot to lose. And what went wrong in that final? I mean, John Jensen saw Well, they scored twice and we didn't at all. So that's, uh... <laughs> that's your assessment. <laughs> Do you, like, tournaments, Euro 92 is kind of weirdly the lost tournament of the 90s, isn't it? Like over here, well, we went out in the group stage, but it's kind of the least remembered, even though we weren't even in USA 94, but that was a much bigger event. Because back then it was still proper, only had eight teams in the tournament, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. That was the last time with eight, uh, with eight teams only. Then, then we go into World Cup 94, USA, probably the most kind of English-German tournament you have, because you go out in the quarters against Bulgaria of all teams, but 2-1 defeat, but Bulgaria were good then. Were you going into that game confident? Oh, you would have hoped to beat Bulgaria, but uh, then we, we, uh, funnily enough, we were 1-0 up, then we score a goal that these days with the change of offside rule wouldn't have been offside, but obviously you can't really claim that 20 years later. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, um, It was one of them, you're 1-0 up, you think you're cruising, then they score the equaliser, and then all of a sudden, then they... It wasn't something not quite right with the team either, because Effenberg got uh, massive dis- disciplinary issues already on the way to the to World Cup 94, and there was a lot not right. What happened with Stefan Effenberg? Well, he, he given he given this to the supporters already, uh, so given them the middle, given them the middle finger, and shown flick them the bird, as they say. Uh, and um, he was having it off with his wife on the plane to the, on the way to the tournament. It's almost like grotesque start to finish the whole tournament. <laughs> <laughs> um, At least it was his wife, I suppose. That's yeah, positive. there is that. And you touched on it a bit there. I always, what's the relationship? Because I think the German press seem to me to be quite similar to the English press. What are the German press like with regard to the, na- the international team? Do they, they kind of love them? Do they always praise them? Or they can, do they have a really strained relationship at times? What's it like? Well, there is the difference is there is like in Germany, there is essentially there's only one red top. Yeah. That means yeah. they don't really, the build side, that means they don't really need to outdo each other with the most ridiculous and outrageous headlines. So that competition isn't there. And that yeah. means as a result, it's all a bit more, well, probably benign is slightly the wrong word, but it's all a bit more 
culture, so to speak, in the way they, they deal with the national team. Do the fans turn on the team? Like in the in the way that when Germany go out to, I mean, Denmark losing the final, you know, that's the final. But going out in the quarters to Bulgaria, would the fans turn on the team? Or is it like, well, we won it four years ago, that's fine. Yeah, all of a sudden, a lot more people become interested in their club sides. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings us on. So actually, by 94, you're 20. I saw you, we, we bumped into each other at Euro 2016. You go to a lot of international tournaments, don't you, with Germany? Yeah. When did you start going to international tournaments? Well, they've really started quite late in, I mean, obviously the home Euros in 88. And then 2006 was the home, was the home World Cup. Yeah. I mean, I've been to uh, away games before that, but I hadn't been to any tournaments. But then 2006 in Germany and 2008, Austria, Switzerland. So essentially at home as well. Yeah, then where else were where did we bump? We bumped into I was in France. Yeah, France, so yeah. as long as it's always walking distance is fine, isn't it? You say you went to two thousand six World Cup. What was the highlight? Did you go to the final or the semi final? What was the most advanced uh, game? You went to? Probably the quarter final beating Argentina. Oh, oh wow! Then in Berlin, that was really good. But the whole, as they say, on Sommermärchen, uh, a summer a summer's tale, so a summer's dream. It's it, it been. The weather was absolutely boiling, which was fantastic. And I had friends come over from England and uh, showing them around Germany and just the whole atmosphere that the country was in. The bus, that whole country had. And in 2006, I mean, forget about not winning that thing. So many good things come from it. The the flag got taken away from the far right. So you can fly the national flag without people instantly thinking you're far right. You might still yeah. think you're a bit of a weirdo, but um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the great thing for in Germany itself has been reclaiming the flag, and for our the perception of Germany abroad has been the number of say English people and tourists in general that did come to Germany. Yeah, yeah, because I, I remember that World Cup. You know, we always, as as we've discussed, we saw Germany as kind of our our great nemesis. But I, there was such a likable team. You had Klinsmann who, um, and uh, Lowe as his assistant. And they were a young team with like um, Lahm and people like that. The closer was playing, was his? Yeah. As well. And yeah, it was, and they're a very likable attacking team that went out in the semis, which obviously is a very kind of appealing <laughs> characteristic to the British, I suppose. I remember it kind of really did. You're right. It changed everyone's perception. So. After World Cup 94, we come to the define... I mean, we'd say the defining summer of England's 90s, but obviously it was one which Germany won. Um, That tournament, did that change your perception of England in the way that 2006 changed our perception of Germany? Well, it was... England sent a very strong message abroad, like with a very strong picture, like with it's coming home and all that. And, and yeah, England showed themselves as a footballing nation. Did but you, that was never in doubt. I mean, no one doubted, even though you did make it to 94. I mean, no one doubted that, that England wasn't footballing nation. And then it was great that Scotland was there as well. Yeah. And so you have got two, uh, two of the home nations there. What are your memories of that summer? Well, it was at the time... When I was working as a tour guide and I was um, guiding people on mountain bikes around the Mediterranean and then in the winter 
I uh, guide people uh, like ski guiding in the Alps. Did you watch that tournament or was it? I did watch the tournament. I definitely remember watching the semi-final against England. I definitely remember watching that at university where I put a few TV screens out and we were all watching it uh, in, the, from, from in, in, in the park that I, that I remember. Did you have the confidence going into that that you had in 1990? I think yes, but because my life had changed quite a bit, I wasn't that, even though I was obviously into football, yeah. but it, 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 I didn't follow it quite as closely at that time because I had other uh, commitments of essentially traveling, traveling around Europe, uh, cycling and uh, skiing. So slightly, my, my, my focus had slightly shifted. Well, one thing I've got to ask you is Three Lives is obviously a seminal classic in the UK, but I've often heard that it really crossed over into the kind of German consciousness and it was a big hit over there. Was, were you aware of it? Yeah, 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 of course. Like whenever a German side beats an English side, then it's always the, 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 the German supporters always saying it's coming home, it's coming home. <laughs> And and was there? I mean, this sounds so naive. Is that an affectionate thing, or are you just enjoying winding us up? Do you actually like the song? Yeah, I think yes. And also, obviously, the winding up is good, good part of it. So, in the semi-final of Euro '96, once again, this is kind of one of the defining moments of our England supporting. But does it mean much to you? Well, what really means more is uh, Biehoff scoring the. Uh... The golden goal in the final, but yeah, um, yeah it was like that, it though. was like good fun to see old Andy Muller standing there imitating the, uh, the the goal celebrations. That that was quite funny because I I found that Andy Muller goal celebration one of the most antagonistic and annoying things that happened in the whole decade. <laughs> I, I and I since then I absolutely cannot stand Andreas Muller simply for that <laughs> for that ten seconds of celebration and. <laughs> But you celebrate that, I suppose. I, I suppose we would as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, by that point, it didn't really matter what moves he was, uh, what shapes he was throwing. As long as the ball was in, that was job done. And to win a major tournament with a golden goal like Beerhoff did, it, what does it feel like? Is it better than winning it by the referee's whistle, like scoring a goal like that and having it just be over? No, what you, I think what you want, you want to really hang on for dear life and all that when your position throws everything <laughs> yeah. forward for a few minutes, don't you? So, uh, and then they send their goalie up front and all that. You want all that and then do them on the counter and score another one. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's when these, days, these days, that would be all fucked up anyway because imagine you, they did the golden goal now. That would instantly go to VAR. And then for the yeah. next 10 minutes, you wouldn't know if you won it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Then, no, this counts now. <laughs> <laughs> um, should we talk about So going back into kind of domestic football, German teams start doing really well in, in club football in the, in the late 90s. Dortmund won the Champions League in 97. And I wondered what, like, what nationally, do Germans want the German clubs to do well in Europe? Or is it a bit like in England where we're, England where we're quite cynical about English clubs doing well in Europe. We don't necessarily cheer them on if they're not our well, like club. Well, like Bayern is, for example. I mean, for me, supporting Schalke is 97 when Dortmund won it. I don't, because we had just won the UEFA Cup a week previously. And then Dortmund winning the better uh, tournament, the uh, better competition, didn't really need that. But at the same time, so that was great. And our area was doing so well. But they still could have chosen a different year to win it. <laughs> 
yeah, and with Bayern, well, it's one of them. On the one hand, I don't want Bayern to do well in Europe. On the other hand, I always think, well, just because they wear red, I don't want them to win. Then three months later at the major tournament, they wear white. And all of a sudden, I think they're the best thing since life's red. <laughs> <laughs> do you, when Bayern lost in the last minute to Manchester United in 1999, were you sad or did you find it hilarious? I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't <laughs> believe it. I wasn't sad, nor was I happy. I was just absolutely stunned. Is that because Lothar Mateus had ended up on the losing team and you couldn't believe it was Well, he possible? was subbed off by that point, oh, wasn't he? That was why they <laughs> lost. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just because you think, how did, how, how? It's a mad end to a game, isn't it? Yeah, how? See, that's because you've got that skyscraping confidence, but stuff like that, you can't comprehend. No, how you, how that, how, how can that end twice in, in succession? Then you can't see though, I mean, it's just incomprehensible. So, and uh, no, I wasn't sad nor overly happy because I'm, I'm really, I don't care one way or other about Bayern. But yeah, so I remember though, I was going to see people I worked the winter with in Bavaria the next day. And mm. um, then I drove from where I'm, Westphalia, went to, uh, uh, to, funnily enough, near Munich. And the people there, everyone was walking about there. I mean, in the pubs, you go in the pub, you couldn't hear a word. The pub would be full. No one would say anything. Everyone just absolutely gobsmacked still. And it was 24, <laughs> 48, 72 hours after the final whistle, people still couldn't comprehend it. If you, we, so um, we, earlier on, you said Schalke's kind of like Newcastle. And now me, Michael and Chris on this podcast, if we give you the teams we support, could you give us the German version of those teams? So I support Plymouth Argyle. I'm just trying to think of a complete non-entity. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get back to you. What about Manchester United? Is that Bayern? Yeah, except for Bayern is really there in their prime, aren't they? United yeah. are not. So, uh, But if you look at it, turnover... I just wanted to say Hamburg, but they're now in the second tier. That wouldn't be fair on United either. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's got to be Bayern, hasn't it? Bayern, really? yes. But then who is Liverpool? Yeah, they're probably Dortmund because Klopp worked there. What's yeah. Man City? Yeah, that's Leipzig or Hoffenheim with all the artificial money. Yes. Um, yeah, got to be Bayern. And Chris, you support? I, well, well, I support West Ham, but I've always looked over my shoulder at Hertha Berlin and thought they, they, they feel a bit similar to us. Yeah, team Lacker. of the capital. And, uh, yeah, the Capitals' number one team, aren't they? And uh, <laughs> there's quite a few Yobos going to Herto as well. So uh, there's more, more <laughs> But it's weird that Berlin, I've always found that weird about German football, is that Berlin, like Hertha Berlin, they're the biggest team in the city, but they're, they're a bit rubbish, right? Where else does that happen? Is it uniquely yeah, German? Yeah, I don't thing, know if there's another... Country, well, you had capital. like before PSG had all the money pumped into. They yeah. hadn't won anything in France forever in the day. Yeah. Then you have got Roma and Lazio not winning all that much in Italy. Yeah. So uh, France '98, the final tournament of the decade, and that's another disappointing one for you. But Bertie votes stepped down after the defeat. Yeah. He's, he's been manager for eight years, which would be kind of unknown in the UK post Bobby Robson. Was he considered a good guy, a good manager? How was he considered? Well, he, he bought himself, obviously, an extension by winning Euro 96. And mm. said, I have to have another chance 
to make a success of it at the World Cup. So that's why he was given 98. Um, it was a losing battle for him. The team was getting out. There was a lot of things happening that the German teams weren't doing despite 97 uh, winning the Champions League. The, the club sides weren't doing all that well in Europe. And then what happened in uh, 98 was also uh, that uh, that policeman got uh, battered to uh, to almost death by uh, by German fans after in laws and mm. uh, and if that happens in the group stages and then the football association saying oh, let's pull the team out of the tournament and all that and and then with all that going on you can't perform I mean also don't forget the game they lost to Croatia it was nil nil we were the better side then Worms commits a foul. At, at the halfway line, that was not really a red card. All of a sudden, we are man down, and then Yanni, the player Burns plays against, scores a minute later. So uh, it's, 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 it's all narrow margin. So we were quite unlucky yeah. there in regards to refereeing decision. But it was a was a very odd tournament because there was so much happening off the pitch. Yeah, I don't. I'm, I'm not Italian. I'm not into conspiracy theories. But you wonder if there was actually a, an attempt. At eliminating Germany from the tournament after what happened with the uh, with with the with the trouble and the policeman. When you yeah. talk about narrow margins, do you ever do you ever think back to England hitting the post in the semi final extra time in nineteen ninety six, or uh, Gaza almost scoring in ninety six? Because those are the kind of things that have played on the minds of English football fans for twenty five years. <laughs> You're looking at me like you don't even know which... Like... Again and again and again, then it's not luck or bad luck anymore, is it? So there's, there, it's, it's like on an individual occasion, it's narrow margins, but overall, over a long period. I mean, look at the World Cup final 2002, when we didn't play an overly good... Uh, we were in that as well. Uh, and we didn't <laughs> play an overly good tournament, but made it through to the final against Brazil. It's goalless. Neuville hits the post. Well, potentially you go one nil up, then Brazil has to come, and who knows? Maybe you soak up the pressure, win the game, win the World Cup. But instead of the, the ball didn't go in, hit the post. Shortly afterwards, Brazil scored the first, and then it's game over. But one thing we do in this country is like we really mythologise the the 1966 World Cup winning team, and I wondered what happens to a nation when you win multiple World Cups. Like, is the team of 1990 still held up as like these great champions, or does the fact you've won loads of World World Cups since mean that, that people forget about those guys? Yeah, probably the younger generation who didn't. Who, I mean, no, 1990 from the history books, they'll go with uh, Lahm and Schweinsteiger and. Close and all the lot from 2014. Whilst probably if you ask someone 20 years older than me, they'll be telling you at length what a great side it was in 74 with Volks and Beckenbauer and, and Müller and Meyer in goal. And then if you have got people who are even older, they tell you how great the team was in 54 with the Walter yeah. Brothers and Rahn. And the two, probably the two most important tournaments for Germany to win was, I mean, undoubtedly the most important one was 54 because that was the rebirth of the nation after uh, being sidelined. We weren't allowed to participate in 1950. And there was still a lot of doubt and uh, guilt and all that. And uh, then coming out and winning that tournament against all the odds, that was, uh, that was essentially the birth of the nation. Yeah. And then you could say a similar thing in a way about 1990, but everyone was on such an emotional high anyway, then it almost 
didn't need to win the World Cup because everyone was feeling like a million dollars anyway. It's funny the role that football has played in the like bringing Germany together and kind of accelerating how they're perceiving the world time and again. Football just seems to like just gel with Germany. It brings the best out of you as a nation, it seems. Yeah, and it's funny how much you abroad, how much you you're identified by. So you're from that nation. Oh, and then they instantly tell you, they like say, I, I'm French. Oh, then, oh, Zidane, oh, 98, and all that, and, and oh, Mbappe, and all that. If, you, if you're English, oh, Beckham. So and, and yeah. then you must hear that uh, when you travel abroad. And yeah. um, so the cultural significance of, of football just can't be overestimated. Yeah. Well, the, well the, not, the 90s were a great decade for you, but we're going to just come out of our remit a little bit to talk about but 2001. But again, that's because of our age, isn't it? That we think 90s yeah. was great. Yes, it was great for Germany. In the 90s, that was great football. But that's because that's when, when we were, the four of us, when we were the keenest on it. Yeah. 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 But, but how did you feel about 2001 when England won 5-1 against Germany? I mean, it's burned into all of our consciousness as England fans. How do Germans feel about it? Do you remember it? Yeah, I remember watching it and thinking, that's not very good. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and then you, you, you go to the tournament and England had long gone home and Germany was still there playing the final. So it really is, again, that's totally irrelevant. I mean, a really good team doesn't lose 5-1. Yeah. Yeah. A really good team doesn't lose 5-1 and you know they're probably not quite quite all they're cracked up to be because, as I say, good team. I mean, the, the, the fact that Carsten Janker was playing up front, I mean, I mean, you can blame the manager all you like, but if that's the best you've got, you're probably not going to win all that much. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was like a bit of a shocker. What cracks me up more than that, if I may say so, is uh, that then that Beckham free kick against Greece. Yeah. yeah. How that is, that there's the iconic goal for David Beckham. And that is at home against Greece in a qualifier, <laughs> an equaliser. Well, and that's the defining goal that he's ever scored. That is pathetic. <laughs> um, we oh. always like to end, Henning, by asking, well, Chris, you like to ask uh, one yeah. question. One final question. If I could give you a button and if you pressed it, you'd go back to the 1st of January 1990 and live it all over again, would you? If I were to end up exactly at the same spot sitting right here, then yeah. definitely. And what would be the, the footballing highlight of that 30 years you relived? Meeting Lauter Mateus. Oh. oh, it's got to be. That would be the best thing ever that ever happened to me in my whole life is when Lauter Mateus said to me, see you in the morning. <laughs> uh, maybe if you went back in time get him a better hotel next time Henning Ben thank you very much thank you that was Henning Vane if you want to hear an extended version of that chat uh, the director's cut sign up to the Quickly Kevin fan club at patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin I love that. Did you enjoy that? Love really that. Great. It's so fascinating, isn't it, just to hear it from the other side. The one thing that really stuck in my mind about that is kind of a bit of indifference to Euro 96. Yeah. In all the awards that, you know, Germany have won everything. I mean, they've won the World Cup since that. And it means nothing to them, Euro 96. It would have mean, it would, it still means everything to us and we didn't even get to the final. I know. I know. What is wrong with us? Oh, it's quite humbling. Things like that make you realise not to get political, 
but around stuff like Brexit, you go, oh, our view of ourselves yeah. is nothing no, like yeah. what the rest of the world sees us, specifically when it comes to football. Michael, just quickly, when you said not to get political, I thought you were going to say, who won the bloody war anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Two of them. Do you think that was why Gary never wanted a one-to-one with Adolf <laughs> To rub it in. You fucking loser. Gary Neville having a stern conversation out of Hitler as David May walks in with the Victoria Cross. <laughs> Climbs on top of a spitfire. <laughs> um, we are back next week with our final episode of the series before we have our... Uh, mid-season Christmas and January break. Uh, we have, of course, the famous end-of-season quiz. Uh, I look forward to that. Uh, Michael has been working very hard to get 80% of the questions with the correct answers. Steady on. It's not that high. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week. Just a reminder, on the 20th of December, we've got our Quickly Kevin Christmas party. There's going to be quizzes. There's going to be prizes. As we discussed, get over to patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin where you get access to the Christmas party plus all the other special episodes we've done, the Steve Bruce uh, episodes, as well as this month's special, Des Lynham with Ellis James. It's a great episode. Thank you very much for listening. Chris, have you got anything else to say? There's only one thing to leave you with. Robbie Slater. See you later. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.